Let's pray together. Father, we know that you are generous and open-handed to us. You have been, you will be, and so open your hands again so that we might receive from you your word as food to our souls. Give us the spirit without limit so that we might be drawn to Christ and move us today to real gratitude to you. We pray, O oh Lord, that you'd be with my mouth and the hearing and believing of your people. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, friends, we are next week going to celebrate 10 years since the first public worship service of our church. Uh, in thinking of that, I've been digging through just some old pictures, so I'll show you one. That was our launch service, and so uh, standing right up there, that's where we used to preach from, that's where the pulpit was, was Winston sharing just a word of encouragement with this brand new baby church plant, September 13th, 2009. I'll show you another picture. And, and that's this room. It looked very different then, but just some chairs and some people. We had 80-something people come in week one, 30 people week two. So you can imagine, right? In one week, we're like, oh my God, this thing died in one week, right? When I think of those pictures, I think of a picture before that. So on a Sunday before that was that picture. And that was taken not in this room. That was taken in Boston. And standing there was Matt Cruz. That's the tall one. Matt, 11 years or so at the time, was an MBA grad from Boston University, had never been to seminary. His pastor one day went to a conference, heard about church planting, and the person who spoke said, think, is there anyone in your congregation that could start a new church? And so he thought to himself, Matt is godly and ambitious and capable, maybe he could do it. So he called Matt into his office and said, why don't we start a church? And in five minutes, Matt said, all right. And Matt became a church planter. And so he started renting out that room. And so every Sunday, we rented out in a gymnasium, an elementary school gymnasium on Highland Avenue in Malden, Massachusetts. And the saints in that room would gather every week, and they'd set up the folding chairs, and they'd set up the sound system, and they'd put out the signs, and then they'd break it all down and do it again week after week after week. And on that particular Sunday, he's praying for me. I was 27 years old in that picture. I was newly graduated from seminary, recently married, had two years of pastoral experience. And I was holding in my hand our firstborn six-month-old Hannah. And standing next to me weeping is my wife, Shainu, who in that community had rediscovered the gospel and grace, had experienced real genuine community where she was accepted and loved and belonged, had seen people really live on mission in their neighborhoods and in their city, and we were being sent out that day from a church and a city that we loved. And when I think of all the Sundays between those Sundays then and these Sundays now, if you asked all the people in those pictures of all the things that God would do in a decade, none of them would have had any idea. None of them would have had any clue of what God would do between those Sundays then and this Sunday today or the next Sunday if the Lord allows us as well. This is God's goodness to us. And so next week, our hope is we've invited Pastor Matt Cruz to come and be with us. And I am so eager to celebrate 10 years with you and eager to hear what the Lord would say through him next week. And I'm eager, even as we enter into the fall, to linger on this thought of 10 years and to give the fall to saying, Lord, here's what you've done in a decade, and we want more. 
And that's what I hope that we press on for in the fall. Today, then, I simply want to take this in-between Sunday to thank God with you and to offer God thanksgiving for his goodness to us in 10 years. And to do that, I want us to consider Luke chapter 17. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn it open there. There's one in the pew in front of you. It's in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, third book of the New Testament, chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. And my hope is, as we briefly consider this passage, that God's Holy Spirit might use it to stir our hearts to genuine, real, heartfelt gratitude to God. That's my only ambition for the day, is that God might use this passage and considering together what he's done to draw our hearts to genuine, honest, heartfelt gratitude to God for what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. Luke 17, if you look at that passage, is an account where Jesus is approached by 10 lepers. Now, if you know anything about the ancient world or the times of the Bible, in the ancient world, leprosy was like the worst disease you could possibly contract. I mean, to be a leper was essentially to be the walking dead. You literally walked with grave clothes almost all wrapped around you, like a mummy hiding parts of your body that were rotting and decaying, if you were a leper. And I've, and I've tried to think of this. I mean, if you would imagine yourself for a moment living in ancient times, in the Bible, if you were a leper in that time, you couldn't help but wonder if God hated you. You had this nagging feeling. I mean, even today, most of us know what it's like to wake up in the morning and have this, this suspicion that God's mad at you about something. You're not exactly sure what, but, but you don't always feel like you're living in the pleasure of God. If you were a leper, you constantly dealt with the thought that God must hate you. Because after all, leprosy was, was the kind of thing that you were judged with. Right? For example, there's an Old Testament story of a woman named Miriam, Moses' sister. She once talked smack about her brother, and God struck her with leprosy. Leprosy is what you got when God judged you. And so if you were a lip, leper living back then, you had this sneaky suspicion, constant in your soul, that you were living in God's judgment. That God must have been mad at you, and your body was literally falling apart, rotting and decaying away, and all your prayers to be healed never went answered. Hear that. As far as I know, if I remember right, in the entire Old Testament, one leper named Naaman from Syria was healed. Outside of that, nobody was healed of leprosy. So all these people, all their prayers go unanswered. And the thing with leprosy is it's not a private affair, meaning some medical conditions you can suffer with in secret. Your body might be falling apart, but no one needs to know. You could be dying on the inside and still you could function in society, be a part of community. No one needs to know what's going on inside of you. But in leprosy, what's going on inside of you bubbles out and comes out. And it's visible and unmistakable. You can't hide it. You can't miss it. It's there in front of everyone. And so when you're a leper, you religiously feel like you must be cut off from God. You physically are falling apart, and you're, in a sense, gross to people, and you can't hide it. People hide their faces from you. They can't look you in the eye, and they turn their faces away, and because of that, you can't look anyone in the eye. You can't be around people anymore because this thing that's going on with you, this thing that's wrong with you, is visible to everyone. And so maybe the best thing, after all, is, in fact, to be cut off from people. 
and society, which is what lepers were. Lepers literally back then would live on the outskirts, in the margins, outside the city and outside its camps. And the only people you had for company were other lepers because they didn't look at you funny, because they shared your lot and your misery. And they knew what it was to be what you were. And so there was this commonality among lepers. In fact, all the distinctions that would keep people away, race and, and, and social class, none of that mattered if you had leprosy. A Jew could be found next to a Samaritan if you were a leper because at the end of the day, you had this miserable state in common. But here's the thing. As far as you lived outside the society, you couldn't hide away from human beings forever. And so at some point, you'd have to re-engage, and you'd have to walk down a street or come near a crowd. And as you do, you think of this. You could never slip in and slip out. You know how some of us hate attention and wouldn't want to be the center of attention? Can you imagine? You could never not be the center of attention. You could never slip in or blend in. You could never be unnoticed or hidden in a crowd because you had the humiliation of having to forewarn everyone that you were coming. You had to announce to everyone where you could wish you could be invisible, where you could wish you could be unseen. You had to announce to everybody that you were coming, and what you had to announce was unclean. Almost as if to announce unclean is coming. Watch out because unclean is drawing near. And that's the single thing about you. That's the word that defines you. You become not a person who struggles with uncleanness. You are by definition unclean. You announce your arrival as unclean is coming. And your entire identity is wrapped up in this one thing about you. You're unclean. You can imagine why people have rightly pointed to leprosy as a picture of what the human soul is like. Why this isn't just a physical description, but rather why people have said what the leper is physically is what we are spiritually. That you can understand why you could feel that. That if you're honest with yourself, if your life was followed around with a video camera, and your every deed was put on display in front of us, or your every thought projected onto a wall, you know that people would look at you and me and go, gross. You know that people would pull away. You know that if you were truly known to the bottom of who you are and all that you've done and all that you are, you know that you would be removed, distanced. You wouldn't be able to look someone in the eye and you wouldn't want them to look you in the eye either. You know what it's like. So you can imagine then the desperate state that these 10 lepers were in and they could go near no one and yet they call out to Jesus. Because apparently Jesus had a reputation of wanting to be with the people no one else wanted to be with. Jesus apparently had a reputation of drawing near the people everyone drew away from. Jesus had a reputation of touching the untouchable. You see, in fact, this wasn't the first set of lepers that Jesus had come across. Mark records in chapter 1 itself, right at the onset of his public ministry, early in his career, that Jesus had come across a leper. And that Jesus had done something. He not only healed this leper, he touched this leper. I mean, you never went near a leper. But you certainly, if you went near a leper, didn't touch a leper. There was just the thought of it being contagious. But more than that, you became unclean. 
Everything that the leper was, cut off from the temple, couldn't go around people, you became unclean. It transferred to you, and yet Jesus touched the untouchable. And somehow, it made them clean. Almost as if Jesus was willing to be made unclean in order to make the unclean clean. Well, this leper colony of ten men, perhaps hearing this reputation about Jesus, stand at a distance. They don't come near, and they cry out. The text says, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And the scripture says, Luke records, that Jesus tells them from a distance, go and show yourself to the priests. Now, why does he say that? He says that because the rule back then was, if you were cleansed. And that's a big if, because literally one guy it happened to. But if you were cleansed, then what you'd do is you'd go to the priest, and the priest would be sort of like the religious health inspector. He'd, he'd, he'd inspect you, verify that you're clean, give you a stamp of health, and reintroduce you back into society. You could come back into community. You could come back to the temple. You could come back into society. And so if you were cleansed, you would go to the temple. You would go to the priest. Jesus says to these ten lepers, go to the priests. Here's the thing. You went to the priests if you were cleansed. You didn't go to the priests as lepers. And yet what Jesus is essentially doing is almost asking them to take a step of faith in the direction of the priests and to trust that he would be able to cleanse them. And that's exactly what they do. As they take that step in their leprous state towards the priest, they are cleansed. That's what it says in verse 14. As they went, they were cleansed. And then that's something even. It's not, and they were healed. Because leprosy was more than just healing. They were cleansed. Meaning it wasn't just that the physical stuff went away. They went from unclean to clean. And, and friends, in an instant, it wasn't even gradual over time. In an instant, they were cleansed. In fact, that's the good news of the gospel, by the way. Hidden in there is the gospel. We don't gradually make ourselves clean. Those who come to Jesus are instantly made clean. We go from unclean to clean. And so these men were cleansed. And to be cleansed then was to be healed physically restored socially, brought back into community. You weren't a walking disgrace anymore. You could finally blend into a crowd. You could restore a sense of honor and dignity. I mean, right there itself, there's so much to stop and think over. The passage tells us of Jesus' compassion for the outcast. The passage tells us of Jesus' willingness to show mercy on any who would initiate and ask him for mercy. Hear that. Anyone who cries out to Jesus for mercy will receive it. The passage shows us even the value of faith. For example, we won't go there now, but if you scan up in chapter 17, earlier in the chapter, the disciples had said to Jesus, Jesus, increase our faith. And Jesus said to them, listen, you don't need a lot of faith. You just need a little faith in the right place. He said, in fact, if you have just a mustard seed worth of faith, I tell you, you could tell this tree to go throw itself into the water, and it would do it. And so his point is to say, you don't need a great measure of faith. You just need faith in the right person. A little faith in Jesus can do a lot. And here it is. They took one step towards the priests. And as they exercised that little faith, they were cleansed. 
There's so much you could hear, but here's the thing. The story goes on because Luke wants to draw our attention not only to what Jesus did, but to how these men respond. Because that's the, the rub of the story. The story is Jesus heals, but then Luke highlights how those who had received so much from God respond. How do a people who have received so much from God respond? Ten were healed. Fourteen at the end says this. As they went, they were cleansed. Fifteen. Then one of them, then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Ten were healed, but one man, and only one man, came back. This one man, and the text tells us a Samaritan man, If you know anything of the background of this, this is a double punch. I mean, it's one strike to be a leper. It's it's three strikes to be a Samaritan leper. I mean, you were a Samaritan. You were a half-breed. You weren't a part of the people of God. You were hated by the Jews. And then on top of that, you were a leper. This is the least man on the planet you would expect to receive the mercy of God. I mean, if, if literally one leper gets healed in the entire Old Testament, and you've got another leper in the New Testament that's going to be healed, certainly someone better qualifies for that one other healing. But here, in the company of ten, is this Samaritan leper. And he comes back, and from the least expected man who receives the mercy of Jesus, comes a model of how those who have received so much should respond to Jesus. Because in this man, you get a model of how people who have received so much from Jesus should respond. See, this man is so blown away, so absolutely floored by what God has done in his life through Jesus Christ, that in that moment, he offers an unscripted, unplanned, spontaneous, real, bold, heartfelt gratitude of thanksgiving and praise. He hadn't planned it. He hadn't scripted it. He hadn't thought about it. But in that moment, thanksgiving so bubbled up into his heart that he couldn't help but return and offer this incredible gesture of gratitude to Jesus. That's what it says, right? 15, then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. How could he not? Everything about his life had changed. As he took those steps, he saw that he was cleansed. And he was cleansed not just physically. You know how he knows? Because he doesn't stand at a distance anymore and shout a word of thanks to Jesus. He's now able to come all the way near. He can draw near to Jesus so that he could fall at Jesus' feet. The one who couldn't come within 50 paces now could come near. Everything about his life was different. And how could he not bubble up with gratitude and thanksgiving? All nine were healed. But only one came back. Charles Spurgeon, the old English preacher from a long time ago, the really famous one, he said, 
that the number of those who pray is far more than the number of those who praise. His point was simple. His point is to say, look, when turbulence comes on the plane, everybody shouts, oh, God, help. And then when the plane steadies, very few remember to go, thank you, God. Many pray, far fewer praise. His point was to say, he said, God gives a continent of blessings and receives back a small island of thanksgiving. That's perfect language. The other nine, they were not less cured, but they were less grateful. And that's true. And the passage should sting us in that way. They weren't less blessed, and they weren't less cleansed, and they weren't less cured, but they were less grateful. And you can hear Jesus' rebuke in what he says. We're not ten cleansed? Second question, where are the other nine? Third question, was this one, this foreigner, the only one who could be found to return and give God thanks? And here's the thing about Jesus. He doesn't then strike the other nine with leprosy. Oh, you ingrates, I'll show you. So now on their way, they get leprosy again. That's not how it happens. You know why? Because he didn't heal them because of their gratitude. He healed them because of his grace. His grace comes first. His blessing isn't conditioned upon our good deeds. His blessing isn't conditioned upon our gratitude. He acts first. We choose whether or not we respond. You see, God showers his blessings on the grateful and the ingrates alike. The rain falls on them both. His grace and not our gratitude is the first actor. And therefore, this man also who came back, he didn't come back to get blessings. He came back because he had been blessed. He didn't come back because he thought, if I don't, I'll be struck down. The other nine weren't. He came back because of what he had received. And friends, that, is it not, is the gospel we've been preaching for 10 years. For 10 years, if there's been one thing we've been trying to say to our own hearts and to one another, isn't it this, that we don't do something to get God to love us. We do the stuff we do because he loves us. We don't act in order to get him to bless us. We act because he's blessed us. We don't fall on our faces and fall at his feet and thank Jesus in order to have him accept us. We do it because he has. And because he's accepted us. And because he's blessed us. And because he's pardoned us and cleansed us, we respond. So the appropriate response to having received so much from Jesus is heartfelt genuine, real, honest gratitude. Whatever your expression of that looks like, it's genuine, heartfelt, real gratitude. So here's what I want to do. Having explained the passage, let me apply this passage. Can I have you consider how much we have received from Jesus so that we might not miss this moment to offer to him real, genuine gratitude and thanksgiving? Can I recount for you some, because I cannot recount for you all, of his blessings and his mercy to us, so that your heart might with me be stirred to give him genuine, real, honest, spontaneous gratitude for all the mercy that God has shown us through Jesus Christ. It's like the psalmist says in Psalm 103, verse 1, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. 
All his benefits would be too many to tell you now. My hope is over this week and on Saturday at a banquet and on Sunday, we'll have more and more opportunities to share with one another of his many benefits. But would you consider some of them with me now? Can I tell you about the mercy of Jesus in this initial group of 12 men that got together in an apartment complex in Northeast Philadelphia? That's a picture of some of them, right? A handful of them. My guess is you don't know just about anybody in that picture. And that's some of them, but 12 guys got together in an apartment on Bustleton Avenue. And at the time, we were like the bad news bears of church planting. We had no idea what we were doing. This group of men, it was 11 Indian guys and one white friend who loved us enough to be in the conversation with us. And in that room <clears throat> were these 12, like the, the disciples. We came together and we, were, we had no idea what we were talking about. We just had this one thought. We have this burden to see other people in our generation meet Jesus Christ. That was our thought. And so then we started meeting together quarterly for five years. The group changed off and on here and there. New faces came in. The vision expanded and grew. But over five years, God maintained this bad news bears group of church planters. We literally didn't know what we do, were to do. So we bought a book called the Church Planting Handbook right? We bought that book because it's the handbook on church planting. So we bought it, and this group of 12 guys started doing assignments from that book. We had no idea. We'd fast on Mondays, and we'd pray for five years, what do you want us to do, oh God? We'd do papers, so we'd come to our quarterly gatherings, and one guy would present a paper. I remember Joe Tartacardo presented a paper on Catholics and evangelicals and what we could do to reach folks from a Catholic background. Another guy presented this one guy, presented a paper where he literally just copied Korean church plant websites. And his thought was, they're Asian, we're Asian, let's just do what they do. So that was, that was our thought of church planting. Five years, this ship that had no map, and yet the wind of God blew it into the shores of church planting and docked that group, all new faces by the time it was ready to plant, into Philadelphia and gave a vision saying, second generation Indian Americans and anybody and everybody that God would give us access to. How do we do both? And we had no idea, and over the course of five years, God safely landed this group from which nothing good should have come from and brought us into the world of church planning. Ought we not give God honest, genuine gratitude and praise? Or can I tell you the goodness of God for me in spending five years of my life in Boston with a man named Matt Cruz, right? Can I tell you, anyone that has met Matt, and he'll be here next week, and who knows me, has often, and I've heard it over and over again, there is no earthly explanation for why he and I should be such good friends. No earthly explanation for why should we be more than friends as brothers. Matt is extroverted. He walks into a room. He will shake every man's hand, every person's hand, introduce himself. I, I hide in the corner of that same room. Matt is a born leader. By nature, I'm a born follower. Matt is six foot five. I am literally five foot six. We're like opposites in every single way. And can I tell you, yet God knew that this 21, 22-year-old needed so badly to hang around Matt Cruz. And I can't tell you how often I sat across with him at DePietro's Pizza as he would talk to me about the gospel, as he would talk to me about marriage and parenting. I'm a single 22-year-old. 
I'm rediscovering the gospel and grace for the first time. I'm being born again, again, as he preaches, as I sit with him. I never came into a meeting where Matt didn't have a document which had a clear agenda and a vision. He was meticulous and organized. To this day, he modeled for me what hard work looked like. Never went to seminary. Outread every seminarian I had ever met. Gave himself a seminary education. To this day, is the CFO of a school district during his day job and plants the church on his spare time. And that one church has become eight churches planted in this last decade of which we were the first. Can I tell you of the goodness of God and the wisdom of God and the mercy of God in letting a 22-year-old spend his years there? And it's not just me. You can ask Shainu or Joe or Lisa. Our five years spent there, you know what happened? We understood gospel and what it means to be centered on the gospel and how everything is about what Jesus has done and not what we do for Jesus. And we experienced genuine, real community. For the first time, we told people who we really were, and they didn't shrink back like we were lepers. They instead drew near like Jesus did. And they loved us. And here was a community where you could be safe and vulnerable and transparent at the same time. And we saw those people live on mission. Not just board planes to live on mission. Literally to their neighbors and in their city. And you know what? All we did here was try and copy everything we had learned there and deliver it here. So if you have, in 10 years, benefited in any way from gospel centrality or in community, or on mission, ought you not thank God with me in his goodness and his wisdom and his kindness in those years spent there and the DNA that was put in then? Or can I tell you how much we have received from Jesus in the provision of our needs? Samar Road, I have a picture for you of this room that you're sitting in. It didn't look like this, but can I tell you Seven Mile Road Church, have we ever lacked for anything? And I'm saying that knowing that is not the story of every church plant. I know enough church planters to know our story and how God has provided for us is not how he has provided for everyone. Their stories have been different. I genuinely sometimes think he treated us with kid gloves just because he knew we needed some extra help. The first website we ever had was designed completely for free, given to us by a guy whose literal name was Angel. And Angel gave us a free website. After that, the floors you're sitting on, or standing on, your feet are touching floors that were completely donated, given to us, installed for free by a business name, man named Jim Jansen. He just heard of what we were doing, the carpets upstairs put in for free. Not to mention, the building you're sitting in and the six acres that surround it, completely for free. I was talking to a church planter just last week. He's in year eight and hoping to find a way to finally stop raising outside support. We stopped raising support in year two. That's unheard of in church planting. And it's not because of anything about us. There was no plan going, we will inherit a free building and be self-sufficient by year two. Ten years we have never missed budget once. In fact, you ask Dennis and he'll tell you we have had surplus often and over and have been able to give away because God has so graciously given to us. Ought we not 
have genuine, heartfelt, real, spontaneous gratitude to the Lord for what he has done for us? Or can I tell you the mercy of God in the people of St. Mark's German and Evangelical Reformed Church? Can I tell you that this congregation, these are some of the women who are part of that church, this congregation, when I had come in contact with them, if I remember right, was 134 years old. You know how set we are in some of our ways in year 10? Can you imagine what 134 years of doing church a certain way is? They sang Holy, Holy, Holy as the first hymn every week. It was a German evangelical reform church, meaning every pastor before had been German, spoke German, their services were often in German. And in their 134th year, they led a 27-year-old Indian kid with a tucked-out shirt and jeans and sandals step into their pulpit and preach week after week after week to them. I don't know if you know of any kind of historic partnership between Germans and Indians. I don't know of any. <laughs> but this German church let me preach for them and every week called me Reverend Thomas the woman all the way on my left, your right, that was Phyllis. Phyllis would come in every single Sunday. Every single Sunday she would come in and she'd roll her oxygen tank with her. And she'd say every single week to me, Reverend Thomas, I could not miss hearing the preaching of God's word. And every single Sunday she would thank me for preaching God's word to her. And then Laura, who's in that picture, worshipped with us all the way until she died. And then we inherited with this property 134 years of being theirs. And then they handed over a $2 million property and six acres of land so that second-generation Indians could plant a church that would be multi-ethnic to try and reach its city. How does that happen? Whose plan was that in? Where was that in our proposal? And with that church, we inherited Diane, and we inherited Laura, and we inherited Kurt. And I tell you, Kurt, I will always thank God. He was the president of St. Mark's Church. And somehow, wisely and selflessly acted in such a way so as to not fracture former relationships even as he formed new ones. And somehow mediated between these two congregations, and God knew that Kurt was the right man at the right time, and we needed him. And then the president of St. Mark's came on and became a member of Seven Mile Road and serves as a deacon today. Ought we not give heartfelt, genuine, real gratitude to God for what he has done for us in Jesus Christ? Or can I tell you about the people who started this church and came when its first Sundays opened, who were here 10 years ago? Can I tell you this? Just last week, I was talking to a church planter, and he was reminding us, rightly, and I want you to hear this. I agree with every word he said. He spoke of how important it is for churches to be attractional, how you want to make sure that you do things in such a way that the people in your city can come and there's no roadblocks for them. And so you want to make sure that the place looks nice and smells like nice and, and, and are, they're greeted warmly and that they have things that would draw them here and no hindrances to the gospel. I agree with all of it. But can I tell you, back then, we just didn't know any better. And so back then, there was nothing that looked nice. Our first meetings was in an upstairs classroom in wooden chairs from the 1800s. That's not an exaggeration. Those chairs are from the 1800s. And we'd sit in that wooden classroom. We had no AC in this 
hall forever because finally we put it in. We, had, we, we didn't even think to put a sign outside. Like, isn't that church planting 101? You want to plant a church, put a sign outside. For five years, we had no sign. Nobody knew that we existed here. We had no Sunday school for kids. We had no youth ministry, no men's ministry, no women's ministry. In fact, every Christian that came here, this was my speech over and over again. I'd say all the time, picture yourself as a missionary in Tanzania. If you went to Tanzania, you'd have no youth group for your kids, no Sunday school. You'd be there to tell other people about Jesus. If you're a Christian coming to the church plant, that's all we've got for you. We have nothing to offer you. You exist to help us point people to Jesus Christ. And so for years, they'd come. I mean, I'll show you a picture of our worship leader. And they still came. Could you imagine that? Ought we not give God great gratitude and thanks, right? We had nothing to attract them here. I will pay for that, I'm sure, in a future sermon. Gospel community mission. That's it. We said here, we're going to preach the gospel. Here, you can experience community. Here, we're going to send you out on mission. And God built a church. Ought we not give great thanks to God? Can I especially tell you from that group of people how thankful we ought to be even especially for the non-Indians who came? I really am grateful to God for them. Because if you look around this room right now, it is a very wonderfully, beautifully diverse room. It was not so in September of 2009. In fact, in the earlier days, it was like 95, 98% Indian. You'd go on a website, and you'd read about this church plant, and you'd go, oh, I want to visit that church plant. And then you'd get into the parking lot and go, oh, what is this place? And then you'd walk downstairs and see this sea of Indians and go, where did I just come into? Right? It was like a bait and switch. We didn't tell anyone. And then when they got here, if you were non-Indian, we hugged you by the ankles and said, please don't leave us. Right? And if you came back twice, we had you for life. Because if, if you could overcome that first week, then you came back, then they stayed. And can I tell you how easy it would have been to not have stayed then? And they blazed a trail for this church being different. You know, they say multi-ethnicity is 80% one people group, 20% other. 80-20. And with that, only 2% of churches in America are 80-20. Are by last count, we're like 50-50. Ought we not give God great thanks, especially even for those people who labored when it wasn't easy and stuck because of gospel and community and mission? I could keep going. For the sake of time, I won't. I could tell you about the leaders that God has brought here. I could tell you about the uncommon unity that we have enjoyed. And tell, let me tell you, it's not a gimme. It's not just that, oh, these people have just personalities that click. I can tell you, even as leaders, we've had to literally call meetings, awkward, uncomfortable, hard meetings, where we've had to express hurt and, and ask for forgiveness and say that you sinned against me and say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And in the midst of that, a kind of unity where genuinely even outsiders who have noticed our team have said the one thing over and over again, this is a very uncommon brotherhood. Ought we not give God incredible gratitude and thanks for his kindness to us? I could tell you about our children. You know, when we started, we used to pray, God, one new birth every month. That's what we'd like. We have stopped praying that, just so you know. <laughs> 
The pastor who was here last week, he, he, he said, if you remember the guest preacher, he said that his church, uh, something like 800, 900 people, has 130 children in their Sunday school. Our church has 130 children in our Sunday school. And, and I'm telling you, that's not common. That's not everywhere. It is the gift of God to us. And we pray that they would run better and further and faster and more faithfully for Jesus in the years to come than we did in our lifetime. Ought we not give God great thanks and supremely, supremely, supremely seven mile road? Ought we not give God thanks for what he has done for us in Jesus Christ? You know, this story of the ten lepers, it starts in verse 11. As he was nearing Jerusalem. Meaning this whole thing with the lepers happens on his way to his cross. On his way to die. And Jesus models in this story what he would do at the cross itself. That Jesus was the kind who was not awkward around lepers. Not the physical or spiritual kind. He's not awkward around us. He's the kind that can look us in the eye and not turn away. And the way he looks us in the eye gives us the kind of courage to look him back. Like where we'd hide our face from everyone else, we somehow find the boldness to look him in the face. With him, when we're around him, there's this kind of acceptance where you really genuinely feel like he knows me and still loves me. You know, the kind of knowing you as in like a leper where you can't hide anything. That's the thing with a leper. You can't hide what's going on inside. It's out. So if someone's going to love you, they see everything about you and love you. And that's the kind of love Jesus has. He sees everything about us. Nothing is hidden from him. There's no part of you that's ever going to surprise him. No part of you that is ever going to have him shrink back because now he discovered something about you. Knows you through and through and still loves to be around you. Still likes you. The kind of Jesus who you really feel accepted by. The kind of person that you feel that will draw near rather than away. And somehow when you're around him, you feel like there's a sense of dignity to you that's been restored. Worth you've been given back. Value that you have. That you're really restored. That you're really accepted. That you don't have to hide. And now there's a new word that defines you and it's not unclean. But to make that happen, remember, Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. See, Jesus is the one person who has the power to make you clean. Listen, he's not just loving you as you are. He loves you just as you are. Yes, he does that. But he actually has the power to change you. He doesn't just love you as you're unclean. He has the power to now and forever make you clean. Make you clean. Brother and sister, you and I, like we will be clean in heaven, are clean that way in God's sight now. Clean. And to make us clean, he who was beautiful had to become ugly. And he who was accepted had to be rejected. And he who was on the inn had to be pushed out. And he who was within the city had to be crucified outside the walls of the city. And he who was pure had to be violated and destroyed. And he traded places with us. He touched the leper. He touches us. And in doing so, all of our uncleanness is transferred to him. And his cleanness is transferred to us. And he trades places with us. That was the price to make me clean. That was the price to make you clean. 
Ought we not have heartfelt, genuine, real, honest gratitude to God for what he has done for us through Jesus Christ? So whatever that looks like for you this week, express thanksgiving to Jesus. Don't miss this moment. We're not ten healed. Where are the other nine? Is this one found? And so our call today and this week and this season is to not miss the moment to express to God gratitude for all that he's done. Let's pray together. God, we give you thanks for this day. I say with my voice, thank you, Lord God, for everything you've done for us. Thank you for all these things that I have tried to describe to your people. Rouse our hearts to great gratitude and praise and draw people into yourself, even today, to the welcome that is available in Jesus Christ. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.